This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. This is episode 59. We were hoping to make it to PX60 before the end of the year, but you'll have to wait until 2020 now for this. Today, we have the absolute pleasure and honour to interview Rob Adams, the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. If you haven't heard of Rob before now, you've been living under a rock. Rob has a fascinating background and most notably, perhaps, was Rob's involvement in the revitalisation of Melbourne CBD in the late 80s, which we will talk more about during this podcast. Rob has more awards than you can poke a stick at, but again, most notably, he was awarded the Prime Minister's Environmentalist of the Year Award in 2008 and an Order of Australia in 2007 for his contribution to architecture and urban design. Welcome to the show, Rob. We're so pleased that you could join us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Pete. Uh, hello, I Jess. How are you? I haven't said hello to you yet. <laughs> hello, Jess. Now, Rob, wh- what brought you to Melbourne? Well, uh, we migrated with the family from Zimbabwe in 1983, and uh, 1983 was not a good year to be employed as an architect. So uh, although we were advised, having received the visa, that uh, we should reconsider coming to Australia, we decided to come. They said, OK, uh, you, you need to work in either Melbourne or, or Brisbane. Um, was that part of your terms, was it? Yep. Mm. And uh, coming from what I thought had been a right-wing uh, uh, regime to see Bilky Peterson, I thought, well, I'm not going to Brisbane. And we ended up in Sydney. And uh, I, I was lucky after a while to get a job there, um, just as a draftsman documenting two schools in uh, Madawi and Mudgee. But that work ran out. And uh, I went home on a Friday evening and said to Rose, after seven months, we had two kids and $2,000 that we brought with us, so there wasn't a lot of collateral in the bank. I need to find a new job. Uh, picked up the paper on the Saturday and uh, would you believe it, Jeff Floyd was advertising for an urban designer to come to Melbourne to work on the strategy plan. And I'd given Jeff Floyd a room in my basement in Oxford when we did urban design together. <laughs> it's, it's meant to be. It's meant, meant to, to be. be. What did you like about the place when you came to Melbourne? Well, I was told by my only Australian friend when, uh, in Zimbabwe, in, in Zimbabwe uh, who was a paediatrician there, um, go to anywhere in Australia except Melbourne. Ooh. So he came from uh, Brisbane. And uh, so we didn't have high expectations. But what I did like about it is uh, we settled uh, in, in Paran and... Uh, I used to ride a bike, I still ride a bike, and I used to bring the kids to school and ride through Faulkner Park and places like that. And I just found it a very easy city to get around. Had you, know, you been to Melbourne at all before you actually moved? No. No, no never wow. been. Uh, and, uh, but Melbourne is an easy city to get around. It is. I mean, you've got the trams, you can cycle, the, the roads are nice and wide. It's fairly flat. It's, it's lush. It, it just seemed like a nice place to bring up kids. Mm. And so we, we actually settled in really quickly. Mm. And so, Rob, when you actually moved to Melbourne, one of your first projects was the 85 strategy for Melbourne. This was obviously a fairly pivotal moment in Melbourne's evolution. Can you provide some context around that plan and what it aimed to do and what it resulted in? Sure. So the the job I was offered was to come as a consultant to work with five other consultants and the in-house team 
to, to write the 85 strategy plan and, and my component of that was going to be the urban design section. And uh, what I found is that uh, the councillors who had come into power uh, recently and the state government with people like Evan Walker and David Yenkin had come to the realisation that Melbourne was heading in the, bad, uh, the wrong direction. Uh, it was basically, you know, freeways were snaking into the city, they were knocking down heritage areas, um, and, and generally there'd been this community backlash, Collins Street Defence Movement, which I think Evan was part of, um, and I found a council that was determined they were going to make a change, they were going to move in a different direction. And Jeff Floyd was the strategic planner of the day, and uh, he also recognised that they need to move in a different direction. So I found a very receptive audience for uh, a message of change. Jess, at that time i just started working at the Melbourne City Council, so Jeff Floyd was my boss too. And that's where I first met Rob, but I, was, I wasn't part of that great uh, change around. I was just taking, I was doing photocopying. But um, <laughs> Ro Rob, you know, your work, one of the things that I've heard about that 85 strategy is that you picked up a lot of the good ideas from the past. You didn't junk them, as is the case in a lot of time when you get a new team yep. on. Well, that's, that's true, Peter. I mean, uh, you know, you come out of Zimbabwe and you offered a job of uh, writing a strategy for a city that you've never been in. Uh, and quite frankly, it's with trepidation that you sort of start into that. So I didn't come with any preformed ideas. I came with big ideas. Uh, and I started to listen to the dialogue that was going on. And people like Lorinda Gardner, um, who had been in planning for a long time, had been working on the community plans. Uh, you know, Ruth and Murray Crow in, in you know, North Melbourne. And really what I did is I just acted as a sponge. Uh, I, I listened to what was being said by the community, what was being said by some of the architects of the day, Daryl Jackson, you know, what was being said by Evan and, and, and David Yenkin, and just try to make some sense of that. And uh, then the job became one, and you know, coming from the book we've just recently written, uh, looking back in hindsight, choreography. You know, we just had to bring other people's ideas into some coherent strategy, and that's what we did. Hmm. And also the green, the greening of the city and the emphasis on laneways? Sure. Uh, the, well, one of the realisations was that the city at that stage was broke and the state didn't have much money either. So you, you weren't going to fundamentally take the big steps that the 75 strategy plan had called for. You know, major things like, you know, discussions about underground grounding trams and, you know, mega structures you were going to have to take what the city already had and devise a strategy that incrementally made those elements of the city that people admired, be they the laneways or the, the boulevards or the gardens or even the Yarra River, and over time, through every action, make them better. And that, that was it. I, you know, uh, I think if you sum up the 85 strategy plan, it was to turn Melbourne into a 24-hour city that looked and felt like Melbourne. And to do that, you had to build on what it already had. And is this where Postcode 3000, which was another initiative coming out of the City of Melbourne, is that where that came from? Certainly the gestation uh, for Postcode 3000 was in the strategy because what we realised is that um, central Melbourne was much like many central cities around the world. Uh, you know, people had left the central city, they had suburban shopping centres, the Chadstons of the world. And uh, the, the city had become... Uh, a 12-hour city. It was, you know, the workers came in and if you're lucky, people came back at night to get some of the culture. 
So the, the, the strong realisation, if you're going to change that, if you're going to have a 24-hour city, people had to live here. And so, yeah, postcode 3000, it wasn't called that, came out of, uh, uh, you know, the 85 strategy plan. And uh, I think back on it, and uh, we knew we had to bring a population, and I can remember we were almost at the end of the document, final draft, and we still had no idea of what that meant. And we were sitting in a, a room uh, in the old council house office building, had no windows and actually just had little skylights. And um, on a Friday afternoon, and uh, I was asked, so how much residential do we need? And I said, 8,000 residential units in 15 years. There was no science to that. That was just a, you know, a gut reaction. If you got 8,000 people living here in 15 years, it would make a difference. And I've often reflected on that. I mean, we get business plans, we get detailed reviews. Sometimes you have to back your judgment. And, and that was one of those cases. No idea of how do you make it happen. That came later. But just putting a target there that you could go for. And how many did you actually end up with at the end of the 15 years? Do you remember? Ironically, on the 15-year period, we ended up with 8,000. Really? But that's pure coincidence. Oh. That's pure coincidence. Now, now Rob, for listeners away from Victoria, postcode 3000, that is the postcode for the central city. And that's the name of it. I remember working at Melbourne at that time, the council, and there was so much difficulty for developers trying to convert to residential. Mm. So it was, you had the aspirational strategic documents, but part of the work was also internal to, to change the attitudes of the regulators in a way. That's correct. Uh, two things happened to enable Postcode 3000, because as I've just said, we didn't know how to achieve it. We thought you could change the planning policy and say, you know, if you're building an office building, build some residential. Nobody really wanted to do that. Um, and uh, we got comments like, you know, we don't want people in their pyjamas with a pint of milk in the foyer when someone's coming to work. So that, that you needed, needed to look at a different approach. And two things happened. Property market collapses at the end of the 1980s. People have overbuilt office accommodation. So everybody migrates out of the old office accommodation to the new because they lowered the rents. That gave uh, a, a building stock that you could uh, look at. When you looked at that building stock, um, a lot of it, uh, the very old stock was uh, heritage with timber floors and things like that. So you were suddenly into fire eggs and you know, sprinkler systems and things like that. So a big part of the work we did is we brought on board a building surveyor, uh, Greg Anderson, uh, who went on to head up Development Victoria. Um, and he, uh, his job was to help the develop developers through and tell us how we had to adjust the building rigs and fire rigs to make these things happen. So, you know, how many sheets of plasterboard do we need? Uh, and, and do you have to have a, an expensive fire system or do you want one that will actually get people out of the building in 15, 20 minutes if they're living there? That sort of thing. And those changes happened. And uh, that was the start of you know, making change happen within you know, residential in the city. So the big strategic approach, but also the follow-up, the, the gritty detail, if you like. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And so was part of that strategy also the evolution of Melbourne's laneways? Was that... Before or was that after? The laneways um, we had started on because um, there was always a feeling that, um, you know, we needed to actually start using those laneways for people to be in rather than just service vehicles. But um, 
and there's there's you know when I think back on it, there was no you know uh, consecutive logic as to what had to come first. There were a number of things happening, and uh, um, I often think that uh, 1992 was a seminal year for Melbourne because what happened in that year is um, postcode 3000 took off, Swanson Street closed to traffic, and the south bank of the Yarra was uh, redeveloped and it opened. And the laneways were a part of that sort of momentum that having said you wanted to get people back into it, the liquor licensing laws changed. Now, we didn't think they would have an impact, but they did. It meant people could actually drink on the street uh, in, in a sidewalk cafe. We came to the idea that you could actually lease space outside uh, a cafe. So it was a very small tenancy that was battling. A few more seats outside would allow it to survive. So those have always been very low rentals. Um, we also realised you didn't have to do much to the lanes. You just had to pave them and maybe put a few lights in and uh, uh, they would take off. But there were some early wins. Um, Centre Way, which runs from the station, you know, you go to Graves, Centre Way, and then through to Collins Street, the major street in Melbourne in terms of uh, high end. Um, in that, we actually worked with the local traders, a couple of artists, uh, and uh, village well with uh, Joubert and uh, just ask the question, what do we need to change here to make it exciting for people? And it was simple. It was things like lighting and paving. Because I guess a lot of our listeners probably know Melbourne by their laneways. And I, I guess, I mean, even for me, I've only been in Melbourne about 15 years. I can't imagine Melbourne without laneways now. So yeah. it's actually pretty amazing to think back. Um, sure. and that they weren't utilised in the same way. It's The fundamental incredible. thing about the laneways goes back to um, <coughs> where I started and said, build on your strengths. Mm -hmm. So if you've got 300 laneways, then if you can find a clever way of using them, you'll, you'll get a good product out of it. A lot of cities have come to us and said, you know, we love your laneways. How do we get laneways? And, and the, the sad fact is, unless they've been, become part of that gradual morphology of the city, and they were there for a reason, which they were in Melbourne, you, you, retrospectively to get a laneway is quite difficult. You can get a few, but you know, they're decades apart. So we were lucky. Um, the, the laneways came out of the very big blocks, 200 metres by 100 metres, a railway station on the southern side of uh, the city, and the energy to the north. And people made their way up through the laneways, and they subdivided those big blocks to make money in the 19th century and they needed laneways to service them. So it was one of those lucky things that happens in Melbourne. Rob, if you could tell, if you're looking back, if you could tell yourself two things that you know now to the younger Rob Adams as he's, in, as he's embarking on the 85 strategy, what would they be? Hindsight. Uh, yeah, hindsight's really interesting. I mean, I came to this job uh, thinking I was getting a design job. And it's always had design in the title, and that's mostly me um, always wanting to be involved in design. And I, I have remained involved in design. But uh, what I'd be telling you is that um, you need to play the long game. Uh, you're going to make small changes over a long period of time, and that's okay. Um, you know, there are no grand projects that are going to suddenly, uh, you know, m uh, change a city. And you need to... Uh, understand all sides of the argument and remain apolitical because what, whatever you do in the city and I mean we're experiencing it uh, you know uh, in the city at the moment as our projects get bigger 
there will always be an element in the community that thinks it's a bad idea. But you need to maintain your respect, listen to that argument, see what lies behind that, try and in fact uh, convince people that you know change actually is not a bad thing uh, and, and change needs to happen. So those would be two of the things that I would actually you know, suggest to myself. There's been a substantial greening of the city, uh, Rob, with pavement given over to public spaces. What sort of figures are we talking about in the last sort of 30 years? The figure we're quoting at the moment is over 80 hectares of wow. asphalt and other infrastructure, because it's not all asphalt. I mean, including that figure is Birrungma, where we took eight hectares of rail yards and turned it into uh, a park for the city. But it's predominantly asphalt. And um, it's come in small sections. I mean, when we started uh, back in the 85 strategy plan, one of the first projects we did was a tiny little project uh, on my way into work in a little street uh, in South Yarra called Mason Street. And we widened the footpath and planted 10 trees. And I can remember getting really excited by, by this. And um, we, we picked on streets where people in those streets would want um, more trees and widened footpaths. Um, and the traffic uh, authority, being Vic Roads, the state government authority, wouldn't see us taking away from the motor car. Ligon Street uh, was one that was an early one, uh, and I don't take any credit for that. I thought that was actually underway, and Jeff Floyd was working on that uh, at that stage. And it was this realisation that if you go quietly through a city and you widen the footpath and plant trees, people will let you get away with that. And then slowly the projects have become bigger. And today, you know, we've got 10 uh, open space projects on the go, but they things like South Bank Boulevard, which is 2.4 hectares of asphalt taken out of a road and converted to a park. The closing of two roads at University Square uh, to extend those squares. And they've just got bigger and bolder uh, um, as people have realised that uh, people are most probably more important than cars. And Rob, Melbourne has a long legacy of, as a proud city. Did you sense when you started here that there'd been a loss of confidence in taking design and planning initiatives? I didn't sense a loss of confidence, but what I did sense is that where people were locked into business as usual. And one of the things that I admired the councillors for was having spent 18 months putting a strategy plan together. Um, when it hit the table and, and was adopted, they didn't just leave it there and hope that it would actually succeed. They realised that, in fact, it's one thing to have a document, it's another thing to turn around an administration that's been doing business as usual for the last 20, 30 years. And they put in place uh, an urban design subcommittee. Uh, it was chaired by Trevor Hard, who was one of the councillors of the day and had been one of the leaders in the strategy. And it was resourced by myself and a very small team I had. And basically the purpose of that committee was that anything going up for planning went through that subcommittee before it went to planning. So if you got a road proposal, and in the strategy we had said no slip lanes, small radii, widen the footpaths, uh, narrow the uh, traffic, traffic lanes. When it came around the first time and it had all those components in, it was sent back. When it came the second time, and only a few of those had been modified, the discussion went something like this. So you know what the policy is, and you don't seem to want to do it. So clearly you're not going to spend your budget this year. So we, we'll actually reassign that budget, and you come back next year. 
and it's amazing how quickly the plans the plans changed. It's like a deep state that, in the council. That <laughs> change of culture mm. was absolutely vital. Mm. That subcommittee only lasted 18 months. Mm. By then, what you'd created is not a small group of five as urban designers. You'd created a council of urban designers. The traffic uh, engineers became the best urban designers. People like Haig Poulsen, you know, need a medal. They, they went and actually found the road space that we wanted to take away. They were working with it. So that was a fundamental change in philosophy, where you change how administration works, not just put a strategy on the table. Everyone buys in. Definitely. So, Rob, when things go wrong with design initiatives, it can sometimes be hard, I guess, for an institution to correct them. How do you experience and acknowledge failure and seek remedies? Do you have any examples of this? I do, and, and I think um, you need you need to, in, in fact, uh, as an executive within an administration like this and, and with councillors, you need to allow people to take risks. Um, and with that, you need to acknowledge that sometimes you'll get that wrong. Um, so the building we sit in, uh, once we got to the year 2000 and we had been planting trees and widening footpaths and improving lanes and bringing people back into the city, the mayor of the day said, what's the big next challenge? And, and we said, it's, it's the environment. Not that we hadn't been doing that through all those projects before. And we got uh, to convince the council that they build their own office building because most of the greenhouse gases were coming out of commercial office buildings. On that building, we said from the start, we'll try a lot of things and some of them might fail. And uh, almost uh, 13 years to the day after we built this building, the, one of the newspapers ran an article the other day about the yellow wind turbines not working. And that was a small element of, of the building. And we said, look, we'll try, since uh, ventilating the building, which was designed on the principle of an, an anthill, uh, through these ducts, why don't we put a wind turbine on top and try and generate a bit of energy? It was an overreach. Uh, you know, the maintenance on that moving object at height meant that uh, it was too costly to maintain, and therefore we locked them down. Was the building a failure? No. About 90% of what we wanted to do, the night purge, um, you know, the the double glazing, the um, uh, you know the thermal mass of the building, all of that works. Mm. But there are a few visible things mm. that failed, and people wanted to dwell on those. And I I have no qualms about you know being being open about that and talking about those values because how do you learn? How do you pass on to the next people who build a building? What, what to concentrate on and what not to concentrate on. Because it wasn't common 13 years ago to be doing these sorts of buildings, was it? it was, no, it wasn't. It was very in fact, it turned out to be the first six-star, green-star commercial office building in, in, in Australia. And so you had to go out on a limb. And I give credit to the politicians here. They've allowed the administration to trial things. You know, the closure of Swanson Street, that was a big call. Uh, you know, that was where most of the traffic came into the city and went straight through to the airport. Um, so uh, the council and the councillors have had the courage to, you know, take on change and, and, and that's important. And that, that leads to the next question, Rob. Achieving planning and design changes occurs in a highly political atmosphere and the newspapers love bagging City Hall for stuff-ups. What methods have you developed that help the Art of the Deal to, steal through, to steer through projects? I think you you need to sell the idea rather than the ideology. Um, 
So, you know, if, if the idea is uh, we need to green the city, then you need to show through professional means how you do that. It's not a, you know, there's some one-off gestures you can make um, and, and they might actually get you a headline, um, you know, for one weekend. Uh, but you've got to be prepared to have an idea that you can practically follow through over a long period of time and make make that um, successful. So um, I think we've, I've certainly felt we've always offered professional advice. We haven't tried to second guess, guess politicians. Um, if they don't like, like the advice, then they don't have to vote for it and it doesn't go through. Um, but if you've made a, a decision based on a professional um, logic and data, then quite often it's easy to defend that in the press. And uh, an example would be, um, you know, the previous Lord Mayor um, came into power on the basis that he would actually let cars back into Swanson Street. When we went out and actually asked the people and got the data and presented it to him, he said, I got it wrong. And when the press came to him, he said, no, no, I got it wrong. I've had a road to Damascus. And I admired that. That, that was a statement of political courage. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. So Rob, in economics, there's a trickle-down theory of wealth dispersal. Do you think in a design and strategic sense there is a trickle-out effect whereby the innovations in the CBD can extend out to the suburbs and regional areas? I think there is. Um, you know, what we've had the luxury of doing in, in Melbourne is, uh, as the Central City Council, uh, we've, we've had reasonable budgets and they've developed, uh, as the population's come back, they've got better. Um, and we've been able to experiment uh, with a lot of things. But I live in a municipality just outside of the central city, uh, city of Yarra. And uh, I look at the way that they're implementing similar ideas to us, but doing it in, in a, a much simpler way because they haven't got the money. And what it makes you realize is it's not the tree surround that's important, it's the tree. So if you can actually plant a tree where it needs to be planted, maybe you don't have the bluestone surround we have in the central city where you have heavy pedestrian movements. But if you can get that tree in and you can do it in a simple way and you can get water into that tree, then you're going to have the same impact on that street because the tree is the big thing that you'll read physically in the street. So I, I look at Yarra and often think, yep, you know, uh, there's a trickle down there, uh, but they're doing it in a, a very clever way given the budgets they've got. Mm, definitely. Rob, talking about mentoring, um, who were your mentors? I think uh, my first mentor uh, was when I left university and um, my dad, who was an architect, but come late to architect, he was a carpenter first, thought that the, where I should go was into a big commercial practice. And, and uh, I said to him, no, um, I actually want to go into, uh, you know, 
a single practitioner office. And I found one uh, with an architect I admire. And um, in 18 months, that uh, architect, Tony Wales-Smith, who is still alive in Harare, taught me how to build. And that, that to me was an absolutely invaluable lesson because university gives you a lot. Uh, it gives you an expansive mind. It gives you, you know, the, the, the ability to think outside the box. But what you don't get at university, or you didn't, I didn't get, was how you put a building together. And so my first mentor, and maybe the rest of my career, was influenced by this man and my dad, who's a carpenter and taught us also a lot of practical skills, is that, you know, there are practical solutions to most problems. So, you know, seek those out. On coming to Melbourne, um, I think the councillors of the day and, uh, you know, people like David Yankin, uh, you know, were, were people you admired and looked up to, um, some of the local architects. Uh, and then um, individuals, uh, Ron Jones, who won the competition uh, with his partner for the Royal Park Master Plan, um, uh, was one of those voices that um, was able to distill the important essence of a place without throwing in, um, you know, baubles. So when you looked at the entry that came in for Royal Park, theirs was the only entry that removed stuff not put a whole lot of stuff into that space. And uh, that, to me, wa was a bit of a revelation. Um, and uh, so Ron, uh, you know, I think has been a mentor uh, and still works uh, with us, uh, you know, on a part-time basis. The other major mentor was in between those two uh, instances, uh, a gentleman who sadly just died, uh, Ron Kirby who was an architect, and we were doing a competition when I was doing my master's in the UK. And it was for a building uh, in Abu Dhabi. Um, and we went flat out for about six weeks, ridiculous hours, sleeping under the drawing board. And about two days out, he stopped. And he went off to the side and he started doing a few little sketches. And I said, Ron, what are you doing? He said, I'm just gonna tell the story. And he did some little cartoons, and it was the elevator pitch. And that, to me, is one of the most important lessons I've learned, that, you know, we get so tied up in our own design, our own philosophy. You've got to sell this, and you've got an elevator pitch. What does that look like? Because what we did then is he put the elevator pitch in, and we won the competition, international blind competition. And uh, I, I thought back, the design was good. But if you believed the elevator pitch, this was the only design that could win. Mm. So... Very yes, good mentors advice. for you. Definitely. And how does your team mentor new talent? I think uh, one of the ways we do it is um, we've always tried to attract younger people into the office. Um, and uh, unashamedly, when I first started, to get a better gender balance because uh, it, it was predominantly uh, male. Um, and we know at the uh, extent where uh, it's mostly gone uh, the other way. We then try and work as a team. We try and have design crits so uh, everybody's involved in the discussion. I'm very bad with hierarchies. Uh, you know, quite often I find myself going to someone because I think they've got a particular skill and someone will say, well, actually that person isn't the team leader. You should talk to the team leader. And uh, So it's about keeping an open studio where everybody hears the ideas, hears the debate and feels they can actually contribute to it. And that 
that's, I think, the best way uh, that I, I can mentor people. Plus, going back and, uh, as boring as it might sound, telling them why you use Bluestone in Melbourne. You know, why we've got a, a suite of street furniture. Why we do things certain ways. That's an institutional passing on of knowledge, is it? It is. Mm. And, and because cities change so slowly, mm. if you reinvented the wheel every time you did a job, all you get is, you know, a cacophony. Whereas, um, you know, I think there is, I don't quite know what the right word is, but when you, when you come to Melbourne, and, and my wife often says to, this to me when she returns, there's a calmness about it. There's a, it. It hangs together as a city. And that's because it has a familiarity about it that you get to know. Rob, um, much of what is appreciated with inner suburbs in Melbourne and also other Victorian cities uh, is because of the Victorian nature of the finer grain human scale, basically the subdivision patterns and things like that. Is it realistic to expect these same features can be incorporated into large-scale urban renewal projects? I think it is, um, but it, 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 it's becoming more difficult because of the economic, economics that actually drive the development industry. Um, you know, if you take a classic uh, case and you look at our docklands, and you could, you could just as well look at Melbourne, I mean, London's docklands or Hanover's docklands, the, the tendency is for um, individual parcels to be thought of by one developer. And what will happen in, at the time is that whatever is making the most money at the time, be it commercial offices or residential, that parcel will become wholly residential. And I think uh, not only are the blocks getting bigger, so you're getting a uh, you know, uh, consolidation of land parcels, but the uses are getting single uses. Um, if you're lucky, you might get a bit of stuff down at the street happening that's slightly different to what's happening above. So. I think there are a few lessons from that, and um, you know, when we recently, uh, I say recently, it's 10 years ago now, I did a study that looked at uh, the metropolitan area and looked at how you could actually bring a population back into the city, and we, one of the solutions was to look at the tram corridors and looked at every single block uh, along the tram corridors in the city and identified those that were ripe for development that didn't have heritage overlays, etc. They were quite small blocks. And I can remember a developer saying to me, Rob, it'll never happen because, you know, we can't consolidate all the land. And my response is, actually, this isn't for you. This is for the smaller developers who can actually take a small block and maybe do 14 units rather than 140 units and therefore use that small parcel and renew it in a way that actually keeps the character and grain of that uh, street. And, and then you'll have an interesting development. So... Somehow we need to, in the new developments, try and get some of that fine grain back. And I believe there, there are some simple ingredients that make good cities, and uh, we need to actually discover what those are and, and to use them. Rob, Jess couldn't ask this question <laughs> to you because she's never been a council planner. I have. And I remember one of the worst things you can hear from a proponent is, what do I need to, to do to get the permit? Tell me, um, what would you like to see? Or you know, do you, does that sort of attitude annoy you sometimes? Yes and no. Um, the uh, what annoys me is um, if uh, a developer comes into council with a fully 
thought art scheme and expects you to say that's great. I love your drawings. Um, I'd far rather someone came in as a pre-app and basically said, this is what we'd like to do. What do we need to do to make this work well? Because then that's a different debate. I, I mean, I totally understand developers. Um, you know, they, they're there. Most of them, uh, I think, have a pride in uh, what they're developing. Um, most of them don't want to actually mess up the city because they're going to have, hopefully have to work in it in, on other sites. But they, they're doing it for a commercial purpose and they're going to need to make money. If you can sit down and have a discussion about um, how their development will make the city better rather than worse, I believe they'll listen to you. And that's been my experience. And um, uh, quite often that pre-app is the most important meeting. If you can um, have the pre-app talk about the you know half a dozen things that might make this development a better a better development the likelihood is that those things don't cost money and therefore why wouldn't the developer listen to you and uh, we're just going through a really good experience at the moment with uh, a developer up at the queen victoria market uh, where we bought a site and we laid down very carefully what we wanted to get out of it and we've just we've got just about a hundred percent what we wanted out and more so no it doesn't annoy me if they say that uh, if they say it expecting you just to say you know paint it yellow uh, then yes it's annoying but I don't think that's the way they ask the question now Rob something we often ask a lot of our podcast guests is about technology and how you see technology changing the way our cities um, are planned and designed and whether or not that's for the good or the bad I might be reflecting my age here, but um, <laughs> I hear a lot about smart cities. And, um, uh, you know, I happen to uh, uh, sit on the World Economic Forum Urbanisation Council, and it's, it's all about smart cities. And my response is, I get that. Um, you know, I love the fact that technology is improving, and I love that uh, it's giving us capabilities we didn't have before, the way we collect information, the data we can get, the real time of everything. Um but uh, it's not going to solve your problem completely. What we need, is, uh, and a better definition, is what I would call wise cities, where you can take technology and all the advantages it gives you and look at it in terms of your particular city and, and say, okay, how do I put these two things together? So if you're stealing footpaths and giving them to you know pedestrians and planting trees, if the technology allows you to analyze the traffic movements, and, and rationalize them to enable you to take more, then that's great. Um, if the t technology allows you to think differently about tra uh, transport, if we are moving from a car mode to a driverless mode, um, what's the nature of that? Is, th is that a driver's, driverless vehicle or is it a trackless tram? Uh, you know, something that actually moves a lot of people uh, more efficiently for less cost. So I think there's this, uh, this tension between smart technology and, and, and wise city building uh, that we need to actually reconcile. Is that part, Rob, your scepticism or caution, is that partly reflected when you started planning and design and the generation before had all that white lab coats, engineering, putting freeways, the modernist approach? Do you think there's something in that? I think there is. I mean, um, I, w I was very fortunate. I mean... I grew up in the in in the 60s, and I went to university in 64. 
1969, as a year out, um, I went overseas, all excited, first time overseas, uh, out of Zimbabwe, and all the baby boomers had hit the university system. So university around the world were expanding. So I went to look at a lot of universities. It was great architecture happening. Um, and I looked at uh, you know architecture in some of the big cities, and I couldn't help but feel that they weren't building good places. Uh, you know, the object itself was sometimes beautiful, quite often beautiful. But you can take a, uh, you know, take Albertslund in, in, in uh, Copenhagen, you can take a beautifully designed courtyard house, but if you repeat it 500 times, it becomes monotonous. So I start, started to question the, the, the basis of modernism, that we were simplifying our cities. And as we, we started in the north, in Scandinavia, and we moved south, as we got down to Italy, suddenly you find yourself stopping in a place. You weren't moving through taking a few slides and jumping back in the van and moving on. You sat there and, and you dwelled. And you, you thought about um, the place you were in, the activity it generated, you know, the, the feeling of community. And the penny dropped for me um, that this is not about architecture. This is about how do you build place. And, and, and place uh, comes back to good architecture that creates a context in which people feel comfortable. And the biggest space in any city is the street. So the one liner I live by, design a good street and you design a good city. Are there any fads that you're seeing in city design currently that you'll be glad to see the back of? Sure. I'm, I'm <laughs> sick and tired of the perfume bottles. Um, you know, these buildings that everyone's got to look different and, and have some gimmicky shape. Um, and, and you're told to look at it from afar. And then you go down to the ground and the way it hits the ground uh, and interacts with the street and what it does for the street is usually not very good. So I think um, as designers we need to get away from trying to impress people with this, the beauty of the object and, and get back to thinking about how does this fit in the street? How do we make this good street we're talking about? You know, what generates activity at street level? Um, is it comfortable? Is it going to be? Is it going to be windy? Is it going to be? Are you going to get sun in winter? So I'm sick and tired of the computer-generated uh, beautiful objects that in the end, and you see them in every international city, um, you admire them from afar, but get up close and try and walk through those cities and experience them, and Dubai would be a classic example. Thinking, thinking very carefully, I know you always think carefully, Rob, so I shouldn't say that in the question, but thinking very carefully, what aspects do you think we have lost in our cities that you appreciated when you were younger? Or maybe there's none. Maybe there's no, nothing that we've lost. No, I think, um, you know, uh, as I say, I, I grew up in the 60s and, um, and there was a strong sense of community. Um, as kids, uh, nobody ever worried uh, about where we were. You'd just run out in the street, you'd take your bike. Um, in fact, I think the parents were quite keen to get you out of the house and come back at, in the evening so you didn't mess it up. Um, and, and so there was community. And um, what I see in cities like Melbourne is there still are areas where you've got community, and they're usually around the high streets and uh, where the trams go. Um, that's where you get the combination of a mixture of uses that actually allows people to live in those areas without necessarily having to own a car, um, because they can move around and they can get it. So I think um, we need to get back to what creates a community. And uh, with the suburban sprawl we've seen, 
um, we've actually allowed the sameness to go out without uh, generating centres uh, where people collect and feel comfortable. We're very good at recreating what we've done. Yeah. And the endless brawls going out and out and out. And we've modified it over time. We've made the, 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 the blocks smaller and the, the, the houses bigger and so the, the house almost fills the whole site. And I suspect in most of those houses, most of the rooms aren't occupied for much of the time that they, you know, have been built. So um, one of the keys to me, and I told the story about going off in 69, um, when I got back to Cape Town um, and uh, went to the planning unit, I said, I've just noticed all the universities are expanding because of the baby boomers what do you guys do and because they're on the side of table mountain surrounded by a big park national park and they said we've asked a different question the question we've asked is how well are we using the stuff we've got and the answer to that was lecture theaters were getting uh, used for about 17 and a half percent of the day and yet every faculty wanted another lecture theater so they said we're not going to build anything we're going to re-timetable Thirty years later, I went back. They trebled the student population on the campus, and it was vibrant. And they hadn't built hardly anything. Take that to the city, which is what we did through the Transforming Australian Cities document, and say, what if we didn't expand the city? What if we came back in on ourselves? What does that look like? And the solution, uh, the the answer is much the same as the university. It'd be more vibrant, be socially cohesive, it'll be financially uh, more achievable and more sustainable. In fact, the financial figures were that for every million you added back into the infrastructure, you would save $110 billion over 50 years in infrastructure costs. So if Melbourne's going from 5 to 10, that's $550 billion we can use sensibly somewhere else. One of my um, pet things, Rob, can the City of Melbourne develop a sculpture guide to installations within the CBD and surrounds? And the reason I say that is because when, when I walk around, like in Queen Street, you see these quirky little sculptures around the place, mostly associated, Jess, with the sort of, there were planning incentives in those days, in the 60s and 70s, that you would get higher plot ratio if you put a, some sort of sculpture in. And some of them, Rob, are intriguing. Yep. And I just thought it would be good if you had some little, something you could scan to tell the history and do a little walking tour. Are you oh, I thought you meant for developers, having a guide for them as to which <laughs> ones they should be putting in. <laughs> Look, I think it'd be very easy. I mean, to start off with, all the, all the pieces we own, um, you know, we've got a curator and, and, and uh, Eddie Butler-Bowden. Eddie would know exactly where those are. So all we have to do is overlay, uh, you know, the private uh, sculptures in, in that. So that wouldn't be a hard thing. Peter, well, if that makes you happy. I would love that. <laughs> I'd love to Eddie. He's hard to make happy. So I, I think that would be very interesting walk, because people, when they visit places, want to go on walking tours. Yeah, yeah. And there's a certain cohort, pretty small, I bet, but who would like to see this evolution of sculptures through the city. Yeah. And some of them are very interesting. I mean, if you go to the little one on the corner up here by uh, Russell and Little Collins, and you'll see what looks like a copper funnel, and it's got a few little gold objects on the top. That's actually a ventilation shaft for Telstra. So they were going to put a concrete pipe in there, and we said, no, no, no concrete pipe. Go and, go and employ an artist. So sometimes there are very practical reasons that you need to solve a problem. And I'm not saying all artists should just be used solving those problems, but, I mean, there's an opportunity there. So, Rob, over your tenure, there's been a continuity of design and planning strategies. How important has this continuity and consistency been? I, I think it's uh, 
been incredibly important. I mean, I, I didn't know it at the time, but, um, you know, you'd love to uh, come and change a city in, in, in a few years. And um, I think many people uh, have tried that. But cities change very slowly. And um, so to have the luxury of um, what is now 36 years of working on one project, which is Project Central Melbourne, and to you know, make small changes that cumulatively have a big effect over the period um, has been essential. What is also essential is the political terms are short. They, you know, they're four years. And um, if you've got continuity within an administration that actually has laid down, uh, they haven't laid down, the councillors have actually put in place a strategy, but that administration can pass it from one set of councillors to the other, allow it to be refined, allow it to be developed but don't try and reinvent the wheel every four years. So I think that consistency uh, has been really important and I, I feel incredibly privileged to you know, have come to a city and, and uh, been allowed to actually work in it for that long and, and have a say in uh, you know, the way it can be designed. Um, haven't always got it right, um, but uh, you know, I think that uh, in the main, some of the small things, you know, decent paving, decent furniture, widening footpaths and planting trees. My granddaughter says to me, Granddad, all you do is widen footpaths and plant trees. <laughs> she doesn't know how true that is. <laughs> and now Melbourne's Rob, been very lucky to have you, I think. Okay. Now, Rob, uh, any message to our listeners? I think um, it helps to have a framework when you're coming to a city. And uh, I think people think that... Uh, Designing a city and working on a city is quite difficult and cities are quite complex, and yes, they are. But there are five or six things that good cities always have. Um, they'll have a reasonable density, and we can debate what reasonable is. But you need enough people to make your infrastructure um, you know, uh, viable. They'll have a mixture of use. So the modernists got it wrong. Uh, you know, All the best cities are mixed-use cities. You know, Prague, you will see... Retail at the ground floor, commercial offices uh, in the next few floors, and residential at the top. You, you need good connectivity. You need to be able to get around the city, and that's not in a car. That is, you need to be able to walk, you need to catch public transport, you need to have to move through the city uh, reasonably. I think if you're not going to get a sameness, you need local character. It needs to be of this place. So Bluestone is Bluestone because that's the stone of Melbourne. Not because we thought Bluestone was beautiful. It's not actually that beautiful. I happen to like it, but it's not hap that beautiful. The other thing is a high-quality public realm. And I think this is where we, we need to thank people like Jan Gell and um, uh, you know, others who recognize the space between buildings as being important. Recognise that you know to get a high-quality public realm, it's not just about paving and street furniture. It's about streets that are lined by activity, that front onto those streets. And we all instantly analyse as we walk through cities, good or bad streets. And I suspect we all get them on an equal rating, you know, between one to five, the same. So we're in instantly analysing our city, and a high-quality public realm is is something that you need. And then. The final one uh, is adaptability, that the city is going to have to change over time. They're going to have to go from car-orientated to pedestrian-orientated. And so the ability to adapt and take road space out and put it to footpaths, to take old buildings and convert them to residential, 
to capture water and put it in the ground uh, so the trees can grow. All those aspects of adaptability are, are important things to understand about cities. And if you get those right and you've got decent uh, you know, community consultation and you've got an orientation of all the agencies playing on the same sheet, then you're going to get the city right. And uh, that's not hard. And I'd like to tell you I invented those. I didn't. They come from a guy called Chris MacDonald uh, et al. And uh, if you want to look up uh, a document, you just Google the value of good urban design New Zealand. And up comes an unpronounceable name. And there are those qualities. And then there's all the data behind them. Have a read. Mostly the best thing you'll do for yourself. So this is the part, Rob, we get to podcast extra. And Jess? Um, Rob, what have you been listening to or reading lately? I'm reading uh, a couple of books at the moment. One is Woomera Lane by Tom Carment. Uh, Tom's an artist out of Sydney um, and uh, lives in and observes the city and paints it. Um, and his, his paintings are small, they're postcard size. Uh, but they, they, they capture the nature of the place. He also writes beautifully and he's just had an exhibition. And he's brought out this book, Woomera Lane, and he talks about his experience as an artist and uh, uh, what he's been painting. And I met Tom for the first time in Zimbabwe just as we were leaving and bought uh, three of his um, pieces that he had uh, done in Zimbabwe, which I thought were very, captured the essence of that place. Um, and we've become close friends. When I arrived here and we moved from Sydney to Melbourne, he, he asked if he could jump in the combi with Rose and the kids and we all came down to Melbourne. And uh, so I'm reading that. The other one I'm reading is a book by Hugh van Kallenberg called Resilient, uh, The Resilience Project. Hugh was the head boy at my son's school um, and uh, I'd, I'd always observed him as being a really good leader but with empathy. You know, he wasn't the strutting leader. He was, he was the person who was just looking and making sure everybody was on the right page. And I, I read an article by him in The Australian uh, a few weeks back um, where he had gone off to India and he had wondered why in very poor communities um, people were always happy. And he came down to three things, charity, empathy and mindfulness. And uh, so I bought his book and I'm, I'm enjoying that. What do I listen to? I listen to um, any song where I can understand the words. So I listen to Leonard Cohen, I listen to, you know, uh, Dylan, um, The Furies. Um, it's pretty pedestrian, but God, I love it because I can actually understand what they're saying. <laughs> I'm a big Furies fan as well. Uh, now, <laughs> now, Jess, what have you been listening, watching, doing? That's a, uh, I, I just started a new book, which you'll be shocked about. Um, it takes me a while to get through some books recently. So, um, I've just started Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Oh, wow. Which is oh, very contentious, Jess. There's a lot of I, lot I didn't of know about the contention. A lot of dispute book, about a lot of the stuff he writes about. But uh, Jess, I went to I had an extraordinary weekend the other day. Friday night I went to fight night. I've never been interested in boxing, but a friend trained for eight weeks in his gym and they had an amateur bout. It was in Flemington at the Melbourne Pavilion. Rob, you must go to these things. You must go to one of these things, right? <laughs> I know you would love the boxing, oh, but women fought, men fought. The women are more ferocious than the men. But it was just a subculture that I know nothing about and it's very easy to get enthused about it because everyone was so well behaved. 
And on, on the on the then Saturday night, I had a, a night in in a city Melbourne. On Sunday night, I went on a tour of the uh, the observatory in Royal Botanic Gardens and the history tour of history of all that. So, and I just thought, what a marvelous place we have here. Within a couple of k's, you've got all these subcultures and so much vitality. Incredible. I mean, it, it's exhausting. <laughs> there is so much you can do in the city. Um, right. I'm not sure I go to your fight, but uh, <laughs> Rob, you come beat my new friends. The, the telescope, um, you know, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. One other thing we do need to ask you, Rob. Um, last week, Pete and I interviewed a lovely um, podcast duo, um, Heather and Diego, who run another podcast. They've just graduated uni. And Diego asked me to ask you, because we said that we were mentioning you, if you can point him in the direction of your book. He's been trying to hunt down a copy of your book. Okay. And um, he can't find a copy. So we'll have to um, we'll have to chat afterwards and find I, a copy for I'm him. I'm happy to give him a, a, a copy. But if, uh, if he was after it, um, the title is uh, Urban Choreography, Melbourne 1985-. Um, and uh, Melbourne University Press. Okay, excellent. Uh, still have copies. Excellent. And so he could just go online there and he can buy some. Excellent. Great if he doesn't. And that's another good no. recommendation for our listeners to listen to, uh, to uh, read Rob's book as well. It's, it was done in combination with Ron Jones and, and um, uh, Kim Dovey. Excellent. Uh, Rob, a true pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much for your time. Jess, thanks. Always good to do a podcast thank you. with you. And thanks, Rob. Peter, Jess, thank you. Thank you.